0: This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. Segregation is always on the American agenda, and today is no less a time for concern about the fact that our schools are segregated. No more appropriate time to discuss that topic, despite the fact that the United States has been trying to desegregate its schools ever since the Brown decision in 1954. Schools are arguably nearly as segregated today as ever before, or at least since the 1980s. Now, it's true that there has been some increase in integration in white schools, just simply due to the fact that there are many more minority students today than there was in the past. But Black and Hispanic students are even more racially isolated than previously, partly due to the fact that there's been an increase in that population. So where can we find some experiences of integrated education that actually work? And uh, Richard Whitmire, writing for The 74, has come up with a recent report where he's identified a school which seems to have found... It possible to create a, an integrated environment for kids not born to professors or members of the political elite but just ordinary people so I'm fortunate to have with me today on the Education Exchange uh, Richard Whitmire uh, Richard uh, where is this school that is providing educational opportunities in a highly integrated setting
1: uh, well, Paul, thanks for inviting me aboard your uh, your podcast. I appreciate that. Um, and this this is a really interesting school. Um, I was drawn to it in part because it's in Boston, which you know has quite the the busing and the racial isolation segregation history. Um, and here's a school that's in Dorchester, which is within Boston's known as a very, actually now fairly integrated neighborhood, more of a blue-collar neighborhood, retirees' neighborhood. Uh, and this the school, Boston Collegiate, draws from about four different neighborhoods. It draws um, African-American uh, students from uh, Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapon, and then it's white students primarily from South Boston. Uh, so these are students whose families live in hyper segregated um, neighborhoods, but every day they come together and the mix there is about 50-50.
0: Well, now, does this school deliberate, I I think there's a Supreme Court decision that says you can't deliberately create an integrated setting by uh, recruiting students on the basis of race. So is this by happenstance that this is evenly divided or what does the school do to create this integrated experience?
1: Well, that, that's one of the more interesting parts of of this whole story of Boston Collegiate. This is a, a school that got started actually in South Boston um, after the whole busing um, disaster there. Uh, and it was aimed at a very high-poverty neighborhood, and the kids there weren't doing well. And so Brett Pizer, who's, who now runs Uncommon Schools, one of the best-known and highest-performing charter networks, um actually started that school in south boston and so then later uh several years later they decided that they wanted to both move and to uh achieve more diversity so they moved from south boston to dorchester uh and so you had more black students coming in and almost immediately after they moved it was 50 50 but it's it's all by lottery uh and so they they can do very little to shape it. Uh, it just happens to be 50-50, and there's no guarantee it will stay that way. And, they, and believe me, they, they watch the students coming in and, uh, in 7th grade and keep their fingers crossed. The most they can do is recruit in certain neighborhoods uh, that they they feel like they might have some slippage. So it's uh, their
0: it is, it's their history of having served a low-income white community prior to the move that enabled them to develop connections into the white community, even though they were now located in a predominantly black community.
1: Yes, and and really the most interesting part of this whole story to me is, as as you said in your opening, um, these are not the sons and daughters of uh, Boston professors. These are the sons and daughters of cops and firemen and uh, janitors and room cleaners, and there's a very blue-collar population, and... uh, they, they they come together for different reasons, not necessarily for diversity, although some would do it that way. Um, they come because they think that this is the best shot that they have of, of uh, getting into a good college,
0: frankly. Well, you know, one of the things that was the most difficult uh, uh, to uh, thing to do when the desegregation movement was trying to find ways of creating desegregated settings was to get white families to send their children to school in neighborhoods that were predominantly minority, but that's exactly what's happening here. Is that correct?
1: Essentially, yes. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't describe Dorchester ne- necessarily as a Roxbury. Um, it is an integrated um, neighborhood. In fact, the, the block that the, this school is on is mostly uh, white retirees. But that changes very quickly. Within a couple of blocks, you get into a very different population. Um, so it's, it's kind of a juggling act. But really, again, the most unique thing is uh, the fact that these are parents of blue-collar kids. Uh, you just don't see this very often.
0: Now, we're talking about a middle school and a high school here. This is not an elementary school where you could imagine an interracial setting working out uh, more readily, the, these are adolescents that we're talking about. Is that correct?
1: Yes, about uh, 700 students from grades seven to twelve. So, essentially, as it was described to me, the, the motives for for coming to this school, in other words, why would why would uh, white blue-collar parents
0: send their kid
1: to this school? And again, this is very general. That these are students who didn't get into an exam school and whose parents are you know, either unable or unwilling to spend the tuition to send them to a private school. So as they look at their options, uh they say, if if you know, we want our kid to go to a good college and have a great, you know, degree in life later on, this is our best shot. And the black parents are essentially saying the same thing. They're looking at Boston public schools. Uh their kids probably did not get into the exam school and they're saying this is our best shot. Best shot. We can't afford private school, and this is the equivalent of a private school.
0: Well, are there uh, the so are, are these families uh, uh, achieving what they desire? Are their children actually making it into college? What, what's the uh, what's the rate at which students uh, graduates uh, are are uh, going on into the well, higher I, educational system?
1: Yes, I think for. Fourteen years in a row, a hundred percent have been accepted uh, in, into colleges. But you know, to me, it's you now having enough students move through the, the system that we can take a, a more relevant uh, assessment of that and say how many earned bachelor's degrees within six years, which is your common marker. And the answer is fifty-six percent. Uh, and now let's keep—if you put that into perspective. Uh, The the lowest uh, quartile of families' earnings, uh, that figure is 9%. And the highest, the higher earnings in that quartile is above 70%. So they're at 56%. Um, That's a little better than some other high-performing charter networks that I've looked at. Uh, But I I think also that their poverty rate is not as high as some of those uh, networks. This is... That Half of these kids qualify for free and reduced lunch. So it, I wouldn't call it a high-poverty population. It's more of a blue-collar population.
0: Well, but even so, it looks like uh, as compared to what's happening on average throughout the United States, this school is doing better and is doing better without having some particular social advantage in terms of its recruitment of students. So what are they doing at the school that uh, uh, makes it possible for kids to work together and for them to to learn something, both those things. Uh, What's happening inside the school?
1: Yeah, and and let me get to that in a second because I want to cite one other academic outcome that I find pretty interesting. Um, It's possible to look at their advanced placement test outcomes and compare them to all Boston high schools, including the exam schools and including the most famous one, uh, Boston Latin. So the way you look at this is how many of their students score between 3 and 5 uh, on, on the AP exams, and the answer is 53.4%. Now, only Boston Latin uh, does better than that, 827 but the other... Um, to exam schools where you have to test into are less than that. So this is the marker of a, an extremely high-performing school. Um, now, as far as what goes on inside, I think, you know, now we're getting into one of the most interesting questions about diversity. Um, because as we saw, at least today, a study of New York schools, simply because a school is diverse doesn't mean that everyone Uh, in that school is doing better, that the minority students are doing better. And a lot of schools, essentially, you get segregation within the school, where, let's say, the white and Asian kids are the ones taking AP, et cetera. Um, And here there's a a very um, uh, strong push to prevent that from happening. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Just last year they did away with the ninth grade honors English class because they realized it's 75%. Of the students who were in those classes were white, so they they decided to make you know all the English classes on that level on the and uh, on moving on the assumption that this would mean that more uh, African American students would end up in AP classes. So they're very cognizant of this. So, so all
0: their classes are level. AP classes. Is that what you're saying? In English, everybody's taking uh, an A, preparing for an AP exam.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. But they're 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 pushing for you know equity within um, to make sure that their minority students don't get left behind.
0: So that's uh, so that's one thing that they can do. Uh, now a charter school has one advantage, and that is it's a school of choice, and I assume it's easier to ask students to leave if they're misbehaving or there's a discipline problem or they're. Uh, not showing up for school. Uh, how significant is that uh, for the success of the school?
1: You know, I, I don't have an exact percent uh, for this school, but I, I, based on my interviews there, I think it's minuscule. I, I don't think that's a factor, and I haven't really seen that as a factor elsewhere. I, I think it's, it's cited as a factor by charter school critics um, because they'll find some student who was who was counseled out, but overall, I don't think that that's a factor in, in the college success rates here.
0: But how about in terms of just creating an atmosphere? Is the atmosphere within the school one where uh, young people feel safe? They don't have to worry about uh, gangs or violence or uh, behaviors that are bullying. I mean, is that do you do you get that sense when you when you uh, visit the school?
1: Yes, very much so. I mean, what, what's interesting, of course, is that the segregation you see among students, you only see it in the morning uh, because they're arriving by carpool, et cetera, and so the white kids from South Boston might arrive together, the black kids from Roxbury might arrive together and might be on the same bus or the same train. Uh, but once you get into school, you don't really see that kind of uh, segregation on, on any kind of personal level. Uh, and I find that very interesting. What, what the, interesting about this school is that they really they don't try and hide the fact that they're fifty fifty, and what that means. So they're constantly confronting it, discussing it. So everyone they're in small group sessions and groups uh, that are organized uh, with various grade levels, so that everyone gets comfortable talking about race, and that seems really key. Um, to the fact that these students get along so well and end up socializing a fair amount, including outside of class.
0: So what's the racial composition of the teaching staff?
1: Um, I don't have a number, but on observation, it looked to be about 50-50.
0: So that's part of the plan as well. That's one thing they can control, right?
1: And, you know, I, I asked some of the teachers, I said, you know, uh, you know it would be a lot easier for you folks, right, to never, you know, introduce a, a topic, a sensitive topic, um, such as Black Lives Matter or Donald Trump, that kind of thing. And they say, uh, they were very adamant about this. And they said, you know, this is, this is part of our mission as teachers. You know, we, we want our students to be able to discuss this. We think it's an advantage for these students later in life. Uh, including in college, that uh, to be fearless about that, and I and I picked that up from the students as, as well, who they they thought that when they went to college, they would have um, an advantage that other students didn't have because they are so
0: comfortable with that kind of diversity. I'm speaking with Richard Whitmire, who is a writer and has written this very interesting uh, report for the 74. Uh, This is the Education Exchange. So, Richard, can we generalize from this particular situation in uh, one of the outlying areas of Boston to schools more generally around the United States? I mean, how many schools like this could be created?
1: Well, as you point out, it's very difficult to create these these schools. I mean, the other... Uh, Example that I've visited and would cite would be uh, Blackstone Academy um, uh, just outside Providence in in Rhode Island. And and that's a case where it took uh, special legislation essentially to create a district where it it encompassed um, white middle class and uh, lower income minority neighborhoods. And they're also allowed to pick uh, students that then fit into uh, this so they make sure that, they, that it is integrated. So that's a very elaborate process to go through, and it's not an easy one. Uh, they, they think it's worth it, um, and they feel very strongly about it, just as the people in, in collegiate do. So I, I think this would be very hard to, to create elsewhere, and I'm not saying that it can be done. Um, I, I view this, frankly, as a, um, as a role that charters are increasingly going to, to fill. Um, and that is a providing a niche solution. Um, this is the, these particular parents, blue-collar parents, and African-American parents really didn't have another option. This is their best option. Um, so it's a specialty school. Um, it's, I think of this in the same way I think of um, Mott Haven Academy in New York, um, which uh, caters to um, children who in the in the in the system uh, in various forms of Adoption, etc. Um, this is a this is a niche, and I see charters increasingly moving in that direction on all kinds
0: of fronts. Well, is this a, an area where the philanthropic uh, community might want to concentrate their investments to identify opportunities like that, and then help to uh, exploit them and make sure they come in come into being?
1: Uh, yes, I think you you're seeing uh, that movement right now. I notice that the the new priority of the Gates Foundation is to invest in charters that do something different and special for special ed kids. Um, and I know it's, it's, it sounds like an odd parallel to make, special ed kids, or and um, in, in, in this case, college-going kids, but it's, it's really the same same kind of area. What can charters do that the traditional schools aren't doing, but that parents want and need? Um, and, a, and I think you're going to see more of this as the charter movement uh, uh, expansion slows, which it has been doing. So then you have to ask yourself, what can charters do and what uh, should they be doing? And I think uh, schools like this, Boston Collegiate, is definitely fits in that category and one that should draw more philanthropic.
0: Well, is there any uh, chance that we could get more Boston Collegiates? Could, is, is Boston Collegiate... Uh, uh, willing to replicate itself or duplicate itself, uh, or is this a one-off?
1: Well, they've they've been pretty determined to keep themselves one-off. Um, they didn't even join the uncommon school network, uh, in spite of being uh, started by Brett Pizer. Uh, I don't really see them expanding anymore. Uh, they've decided to do it on their own, and that they they're providing a pretty valuable function, which they obviously are. Um, I, I, I do think that the charters have a potential to, to have, uh, offer parents a diverse environment, uh, but they have to be allowed to, to recruit on a, a very broad basis, and they have to be allowed to shape their admissions rather than just have it purely on lottery. Here's a case where, you know, it's, it's kind of a quirk because it started as a mostly white school, and therefore white parents trusted as that, and then moved into a more minority neighborhood and started doing recruiting there. So they're just kind of lucky they've kept the 50-50. But wouldn't it be great if more schools could shape that environment uh, intentionally? And I think you see that. Success Academy is doing that in New York, uh, simply by moving into uh, neighborhoods that are more diverse.
0: Well, you have uh, pointed uh, a direction that I hope that uh, many people who are thinking about where we next uh, need to go uh, will pay attention to. Thank you very much, Richard, for uh, sharing this uh, experience that you've had with us all and uh, with me on the Education Exchange. Uh, This has been Richard Whitmire, who has written a very fascinating report for the 74. Uh, Thank you, Richard, for joining me
1: the invite. I appreciate it, Paul.
0: This is the Education Exchange. I'm Paul Peterson. The podcast is released every Monday at noon. Uh, Please join me each week on the Education Exchange.